with custom furniture, you want to you want to push the boundaries a little bit of pricing because it's a valuable thing we're all doing. It, it truly is, and you you should come from it that it's worth it, and and live in the in abundance. If you if you find yourself having to like eke out the slightest bit of profit. You're you're probably not pricing well enough, or you have a bad money conversation going on in your head. That's the voice of Mark Jupiter, owner of the furniture company Mark Jupiter, and I'm excited to talk with him right after this word from our sponsor. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Jobber. Jobber brings people and technology together by keeping jobs on track, customers happy, and your business organized. Jobber also just recently launched a new grant program, Boost by Jobber a program providing $100,000 to 20 small local home service businesses across the U.S. and Canada. So whether you're just starting your business or you're a well-established business, you're invited to apply for a grant. Just visit BoostByJobber.com. That's BoostByJobber.com. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Mark Jupiter, owner of the Brooklyn, New York-based furniture company, Mark Jupiter. Mark is a fourth-generation craftsman, someone who literally has building in their bloodline. But he knew when he started his company that a love and legacy for building wasn't enough to pay the bills. So he focused equally on the furniture and the business side to make his company what it is today. Nestled in the heart of Brooklyn, Mark and the 15-person team that makes up his shop are turning out custom work stronger than ever before. But let's take a step back, before the large shop, before the business success, even before the furniture even started, to where Mark first learned what a hard day's work was really about. Um, I've been building my whole life, ever since I was three years old. First time I could lift a hammer, my father, you know, put the use of free labor to work. Um, and sort of grew up making stuff with him. He was a general contractor here in the city, so I learned a lot of different trades and just became crafty. I was a, a sculptor on the side and expressed myself artistically um, using that medium for a while. Um, and I decided I'm, I'm fourth generation New York City builder. My father did mostly interiors. His father was a house flipper um, out in the Rockaways. And then his father, my great-grandfather, was a tinsmith that uh, worked on some of the first copper roofs uh, in uh, the skyscrapers of the city. Uh, but no one ever built a house before. So I started uh, my career being a custom home builder and built a line of prefabricated um, lead platinum or very green homes across the, the Northeast. Um, Survived through the the housing depression back in 2008. Uh, you know, I had 50 employees, and you know, it was it was quite dramatic to say the least. Uh, but we survived and I got through it. But I got basically I got tired of making custom homes for people, um, and wanted to get back to my my art and making things with my own hands again. And um, I got married during that time, and my wife, who's amazing. Uh, said you need to stop building houses and start building furniture because you're really good at it. And so I listened to her and um, sort of the universe supported all that. And I took a leap 
stopped one business and reinvented myself and started this one. I've found a shop here in Dumbo, literally a half a block away from where I live, um, which was serendipitous and incredible. And the rent worked for me. I, I was able to split it with another company. They just needed the walls. I needed the floor for my tools and whatnot. And so we, we took out a five-year lease on the space. And um, I spent the next two months just dreaming up pieces and finding great materials. I'm a big believer in storied materials um, just because they add a great tale to what you're making. So it's not just about what you're making, but what it's made of. So I would find uh, old water towers that are made from 400 year old Pacific Northwestern redwood trees, fallen storm trees from classic neighborhoods in Brooklyn, some steel work off of the Manhattan Bridge and built a bunch of pieces um, over, the, over the, those first two months and opened my doors and um, things have been uh, skyrocketing since then. Um, I'm a big, I have a great deal of experience in business. So I'm not only a, a pretty good craftsman, I feel, and designer, but um, I know how to uh, come across as extremely professional that people can rely on and trust um, and buy quite expensive pieces of furniture from. This might seem like a repetitive question, but why furniture and i'm saying that and, and let let me let me preface that with you come from you're a, a fourth generation craftsman so you know what it's like to work with your hands and you yeah. know how satisfying that is but you yeah. also know how hard it is and how hard it is to be in a physical labor profession and on, throw on top of that building in New York. I have a furniture company in New York. I know yep. how incredibly hard it is. For a time, I had to keep somebody on payroll full time just to sit in our truck outside. So not even building stuff, not even <laughs> installing stuff. So it, it's a hard, it's a hard place to work and then throw on top of that furniture, which is an incredibly hard trade to get into because it not only has to function, it also has to look good. It has to stand up to time and people have to use it daily. Yeah. On, on top of that, you're saying that you have a good head for business and furniture is, is, is just such a hard business to be in. And well, I, I, that, 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 so that was my preface. So, so jump into that. Why, yeah. why furniture? Yeah. Well, I, I think the longer you keep telling yourself that it's hard, the longer it's going to be hard, you know, for me, like that's, I get it. Yeah, it's hard. But one, in terms of the labor part of it, I live for hard work. I love it. There's nothing that gets me up in the morning, uh, you know, faster and stronger than knowing I have a hard day's work ahead of me. I, I and I've always been like that ever since I was a kid. So if you if 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 you call it hard, it's going to be hard. But if it's just all in a day's work, which is the way I look at it, then they're just obstacles you got to navigate around and not get too frustrated by and know that you're going to be busting your ass that day no matter what you do. That's just the given role of this profession. It's, it's a it's busting profession. But I love it. I truly do. I, you know, I was looking at, and, and you know this, Ethan, I was milling 12 quarter 
solid oak the other day and I had about 55 boards to go through, right? So each one of those boards is about 120 pounds and I'm doing that all day long and I just, I just love it. Um, and, you know, consider it a challenge and I time myself and I see how much I can get through. And what drives me is that there's nothing more that I enjoy than making beautiful things for people. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of other things that I can do and I've done them. Um, but the end result of it is not, you know, I'm building furniture that's going to last longer than my clients, right? It's just heirloom quality pieces that are going to be in this world a very long time. And I put them there and I grew up having dinner around them. You know, my, my father made our dining room table and he would tell stories about it and how he drove my mother crazy and carving it up in the middle of their living room and there we were touching it and feeling it and it up excuse my language uh, as kids but it all became part of the the lore and the story of that table and, and those are the kind of pieces that I make for for people to to sit around for for generations possibly and and um, have it be a reflection of who they are yeah, don't don't get me wrong. I I love building furniture and I I love the craftsmanship and I love all the parts of it that come with building furniture. But again, it's it's a hard profession and the the sure. the building side is the the exciting part, the yeah. the the, it's the easier part. part. It's You're it's right. the easier part. And so the business yeah. side is yeah. is the harder part and well, that's what everybody stumbles on right like there's a lot of great craftsmen out there but to make a business out of it that you can you know if you're if you have a family that you can feed your family with you know that 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 can be challenging and that is an art unto itself how to how to make that kind of business work you know the furniture business we yeah. can go into that yeah you know, there is there is a recipe <laughs> well, I appreciate you giving the lead in, so I didn't even need to do that. So what? Let's what's, talk about that. Ethan. Yeah, yeah. So they, thanks for having me on your. Thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, so, problem, no problem. So, so you said there, there's a recipe. So if you have, if you have the recipe, then then share right. share yeah. what you've been cooking up. Right. So, so you go into it knowing that it's a business. It's not just an art form, right? You want to make a living at this. So. When I was making those first 12 pieces, I knew that alongside of that, I had to build really the construct of my company. So how am I going to sell these pieces? What, how am I going to tell people about them? Who are going to be my initial clients? These are all things that I've you know, conceptualized from the, from the get-go. And unless I had that conceptualization of what that would be, I knew it wasn't going to work. So the first thing I did was name my company. A lot of people remember my name. I went through a lot of stupid names, but named it after myself because I wanted people to know who to call. Then I built my website and, you know, it's not the most difficult thing in the world. I went about it in sort of a, a an out of the box way, though there are a lot of great programmers here. I wanted it to be all about the furniture. So I knew I was just going to put my furniture on a, on a white backdrop and and then just build a catalog of furniture on there but have it look clean and professional and make it look like i knew what i was doing not only as a furniture maker but as a business so 
Each piece had a tear sheet. It had some information about it. The, an interior designer or a homeowner could download that tear sheet, have it in their hand and show whomever they wanted to. Then I knew that I needed to be findable, right? So I integrated search engine optimization into my website or SEO, where you put uh, different tags all about your website so that you're findable online, which is extremely important. So when you Google or whatever browser you're using and you search custom furniture, New York City or NYC or Brooklyn Furniture Makers, I'm right there. And that takes patience and finding a company typically overseas, they can do it. I've used many vendors um, from India and Pakistan, actually, that are brilliant programmers and did all of my SEO work and did a really great job, but there are also plenty domestically as well, um, but vitally important. And then I made all of my collateral. And one thing that I knew how to do from my past history of business was um, I learned the Adobe suite of design tools like Photoshop and Illustrator and InDesign extremely helpful tools for a young business person because you don't have to rely on other people to create your immediate needs. So those tear sheets, business cards, little five by seven takeaways. And if you get really good, you can start doing little lookbooks. But having all those ready to go are crucially important as well. And then knowing who my audience was and making sure that my business was flexible. So if you look into my company, you'll see a through line in terms of aesthetic, but I don't have a line of furniture. I, I know a lot of furniture makers that, in my opinion, make the mistake in saying this is, I have to create a line. I'm going to spend time, I'm going to lock myself in a room and I'm just going to design a line and then I'm going to put it out there and see who likes it. And just in my experience, which is broad, 90% of the time that will fail, um, to be blunt. Uh, it's just too much in a box. It's not enough about your clients and too much about you and what you think furniture sh should look like. Um, so when a client walks into my showroom or my shop or gets in contact with me online, you know, I take a blank page approach to it all and just start discussing what turns them on what kind of materials they like, what side of forms they like, color. Um, and they'll, they'll see my work so they know, you know, if they want something incredibly traditional, they probably wouldn't have contacted me in the first place. You know, if they want something a little edgy, a little touch of elegant industrialism, you know, I know they're coming to me because they, they already get my vibe. And then uh, through just really great listening, uh, which is, also crucial, um, I will give them a price, what I think it's gonna cost right off the bat, um, which is a, the most important conversation to have as quickly as possible. Most furniture makers, most business people in general, avoid that conversation for way too long. Um, so someone comes in and say, hey, I want an eight foot dining table and I love what you're doing with Ceruced surfaces or oxidation um, or the, the grays that are really nice now. And I like a little bit of brass and a metal base. And I'll take all that in and I'll 
reflect back to them, okay, I think that's going to cost $10,000 or whatever it's going to be, but it'll be honest and it will be accurate and it won't change all that much. You know, I know what my markups on are, and we can talk about that in a little bit and how to get to estimating. Um, but I'll get their buy-in monetarily right off the bat. So they say, okay, that sounds pretty good. Or they'll say it's too high or, or, or whatever they say, if it's, if, if it's way too high, then they're just not the right client. If it's a little high, maybe we can negotiate a little bit. Um, and then once we agree on price, then they hire me even without a design, which is also important. And, and my wife taught me that because I've started and I was designing all day long for people that may or may not buy anything, um, which uh, in, on one hand could be rewarding because they end up buying something. But on the other hand, it can be frustrating because I did all this work and they didn't buy anything. So my job is to get their trust, have them agree on price, have them to appreciate me as a designer, and then pay me a 50% deposit before I start designing. Um, and then once we do that, then I have a process of 12 to 16 weeks till delivery. And that includes design approvals, material samples, um, fabrication, and then obviously delivery. You said that you are getting the deposit before any design is even discussed or is even drawn out. Right. It might be That's discussed, right. but it hasn't been drawn out. How yeah. do you deal with this? And maybe it's it's in contracts or maybe it's just a handshake deal. How yeah. do you deal with, because it's all custom furniture, people right. changing their mind and people you you put the design down and it's in your head it's in the client's head and then when pen goes to paper they say oh that's not really what i was thinking i was thinking let's change it to brass legs and let's change it to 100 year old reclaimed walnut right 50, right 50 inches wide and you're like right. well that's not what i originally priced you at and then there's that awkward conversation where you have a deposit but the project isn't there anymore how right. do you deal with that right so you want to avoid that at all costs and that rarely happens to me okay um, and i'll i'll tell you how i do it basically if all those questions still exist you didn't have a good enough initial conversation with them you want to make sure a lot of that is cleared up before they pay you so there are any surprises and so that comes for me at least it comes in two forms it comes from the conversation and then it comes from the proposal that i send them so it's so and i don't really have a contract i have a a, a proposal that's one sheet i have six terms on it so really not big deal and that just talks about wood movement and you know direct sunlight exposure and all that can do and natural materials and sort of things like that and and my lead time but then i'll detail out my understanding of our conversation and what i priced out so i'll say custom dining room table dimensions are 108 by 42 um, solid walnut top or dark walnut top with a couple of brass bow ties and um brass 
Wishbone bass or another name of one of the other basses that I do. Or um, if it's something brand new, then design TBD, but I will outline what it's made out of. But, you know, there should be a clear understanding that that those nebulous things, quote unquote, that are still not really fleshed out, have some parameters around them. So they can't come back to you and say, oh, well, actually I want, you know, the, the, the base to be gold plated, you know, and then you got to have that uncomfortable conversation. So I, it never gets there with me. I always preface it by this price is based on this conversation, this understanding of material, um, and it won't change unless something, you know, outside of the box occurs, outside of those parameters occurs, like a gold-plated base or a larger tabletop or something that requires an incredibly complex procedure that was unforeseen. You know, so then when 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 that happens and that and that does happen, then you've addressed it. You have a proposal that shows clear parameters. And if and if something comes up where they change their mind, then you say, okay, that's that's great. We can do that. That's going to add uh, five thousand dollars to your cost. Is that okay? And it's it's if you if you cover those bases, it's rare that you're going to have a client come back to you and go, well, I just I thought you said it was going to be ten thousand dollars, and that was it, and I could do all these different things. If if that happens, then you just you weren't covering your bases. You weren't having a good enough conversation and you, and you weren't detailing your proposal. So all these things, the paperwork, right? Pricing, these are all part of the business. It's not just, you know, yeah, I get to go off and make stuff. Like these are the things that make you a business. Let's talk about pricing. And yeah. your work is very much one of a kind. Yes, people come to you for for a, a, a style that you have, which you talked about a little bit, and people can see in your work if they look at any of the any of the pictures of your pieces. But your your work is one of a kind, and and that means yeah. that not every single piece, just like in every custom shop, not every single piece is exactly the same or right. even in the same ballpark. Maybe they have the same design elements, but totally different materials. Yeah. What's your pricing structure when you you get that initial call and you're figuring out what a, a piece is gonna cost? Yeah, so I take, the way I figure it out quickly, and it's good to figure it out quickly so you're not sending out for bids or spending a huge amount of time pricing out every detail. I take my big number of fixed costs. So if I'm making a dining room table, I have my board footage calculator. I type in how much wood I'm going to need. You know, I make sure I have 40% extra on that order so I can be choosy in terms of the boards that I'm going to use. And then for my base, I'll price out the fixed costs for that as well. And then I'll take those fixed costs. So let's say I spend $1,000 on the lumber for the top and 600 for the material on the base. So I have $1,600 of fixed costs. Then to make sure my is covered, I'll multiply that by four, right? So that turns into, let's say 1,500. So that turns into a $6,000 table. Um, and then 
then I throw in what I feel like my work is worth, right? So I know that if I price it at six, that's the lowest I want to go. And then I'll start it where I feel good about, where my margins go up a little bit, and I'll, I'll price it at 10 and see what my reaction is from my client. You know, you want to be, you, with custom furniture, you want to you want to push the boundaries a little bit of pricing because it's a valuable thing we're all doing. It, it truly is. And you, you should come from it that it's worth it and and live in the in abundance if you if you find yourself having to like eke out the slightest bit of profit you're you're probably not pricing well enough or you have a bad money conversation going on in your head you know like you're scared to say a price uh, because you think it might be too high or you might lose the client you know you can always lower your price it's really hard to raise your price. So go in high and see what the reaction is. And if you have to take it down a little bit, know what your floor is. And I use a four times multiple of my fixed costs. And so that four, I choose four because I know that will cover my labor costs, all my insurance, my rent, and leave a little bit for the baby. Four lead times. Now, you're giving high prices and relatively long lead times. Yeah. How do you have that conversation with a client? And you've done this for many years. And this this conversation is one that you've had repetitive times. So thousands of times. How do you have that conversation where this is the price? Crucial. And this is the lead time and take it or leave it. How did you build that confidence? And how did you start having that conversation? Um, You know, I think all of us that are making furniture have a certain amount of confidence to begin with, right? So there's an innate confidence that's in there. And when I first started, yeah, both those topics, pricing and lead times were scary. Right. Because am I going to lose it? Do I have to I have to please I have to please, you know, so once I I'm a business person, I have a lot of history in that. So I learned long ago that having a pricing conversation right off the bat is the most important thing. So I never really had much of a problem with having that conversation. And I would I would see what kind of person I'm dealing with to know how high I should or shouldn't go. And I would land on a price again that I know would work for me. And in the beginning, my lead time was eight weeks. I would write on my proposal eight weeks or eight to 10 weeks to give myself a little flexibility. And then I got busier, you know, and and eight weeks wasn't going to work. And I'm like, huh, if I raise it to 12 to 16, am I going to lose clients? I'm nervous about that. And then also being a business person, it is more important not to clog up your production than it is to, than to lose business. It's more damaging to clog up your production with fast and undoable lead times than it is to lose a job or two. And that's really important for people to learn as quickly as possible. So I, 
when I raised my lead time and based on being busy, not based on me being, a, me being slow, that's just how long the line is to wait. You know, it doesn't take 12 to 16 weeks to make a table, but when you have 40 tables to make and, and, and a limited crew, that's how long it takes. So it sort of is what it is. And so I just say it. I don't beat around the bush. I'm not scared about it. And I just, I make sure it just comes out of my mouth. So when someone says, how long your lead time? I don't go, well, you know, these days a little bit, I don't beat around the books. I just say it's 12 to 16 weeks from deposit. And that includes design time, material samplings and fabrication. And they go, okay. And then sometimes I'll say, you know what? If you were buying a custom sofa from Macy's it would take that long also. You know, it's not, it's not an outrageous time. Somehow people think that because you're a smaller business or whatever, you'll jump through a whole bunch of hoops for them. And uh, you got to make sure that that's not the case and you're not their puppet and that it's okay to just call it what it is. Remembering that there's no better way to screw up your business or to piss off the people that are helping you make this stuff than to throw a whole bunch of work with them with un doable timelines you clearly love the woodworking part of it the the sawdust and the sweat and being in the yeah. shop and building and yeah. there are so many people out there who love that part too and that's what drew them to woodworking that's sure. what made them start thinking i could have a furniture company of my own and that's that's great but like we've been talking about, there is that business side and there's some amazing, amazing furniture makers out there that yeah. just do this as a hobby because the business side is too hard. So it yeah. really goes hand in hand. What would yeah. you tell people who are looking to get into this or who already are in this and they are on the path of having a furniture company and they love the woodworking part of it, but the business side is just beating them down and they don't yeah. think that they can do both sides of it. Yeah. Come work for me. That's what I would try. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm hiring now too. So if you are that person, and you think that maybe working for a great company would be a good idea, then give me a call. Well, let, let's talk, let's talk to the people who uh, a commute to Brooklyn is a little bit outside of either their, uh, yeah. their daily drive or even their time zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually flew a guy in from Minnesota the other day that was interested in working here. You are really pushing this opening. I, I don't, I'm glad. Um, so I, another, another thing that everyone should note is take every opportunity to push anything that you want. Right. Any, any press is good press. Um, um, well, so right. Being in this business, the business side of it is not for, for everybody. And, and unless you can commit to being presenting yourself as a business and being buttoned down about it and keeping your paperwork and writing all your proposals and being clear on what you're delivering and timelines and material samples and all that stuff, um, then, you know, keep it as a hobby or, and what I've learned is if I don't like to do it, I'm probably going to screw it up. So I need to hire somebody that can do it for me. And and that's what I've I've done pretty much every step of the way that as I grew, I also grew my staff um, 
and to sort of get as much as possible off of my personal plate of the things I didn't like to do. In the beginning, I did it all. I had to do it. I did it all. Um, and and the secret to it is when you have 10 balls up in the air, and that's not just your projects, but paperwork and delivery scheduling and sampling and proposals, all these balls, um, the secret is not to let any of them drop. Can't let the balls drop. Once the balls start dropping, they all start dropping and you'll drive yourself nuts and you won't be able to pick them up fast enough. So you got to keep them all up in the air and be responsible, make lists, your to-do lists every day, which is what I do of all the things I got to get done. Check them off one at a time and it's a really gratifying feeling. Mark, thank you so much for, for sitting down with me today. This was a fantastic conversation you shared a lot of the inner workings of your business, how your mind works, and how a, a furniture company should be run. I definitely appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, so much. thanks, Ethan. I love all the things that you're doing out there. It's it's great. It's great to watch you on Instagram and see your smiling face all the time. Oh well, thank you so much. You're making <laughs> me, you're making me blush. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at TheBuildWithEthan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.